The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact you are a good and wise God that you've given your church the instructions and the tools by which to maintain discipline. I pray, Lord, that as we discuss some of these issues today, that it would be helpful that we are people who need wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be honored, that we would faithfully explain what is in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, the title Craig gave me is Practical Issues in Church Discipline. And what I intend to do is work through the basics of church discipline. There's a lot of notes there, but some of it I'll go over fairly quickly because I think that Probably most of you know the basics, and actually where church discipline gets complicated is in the exceptions. Or maybe when 30 years ago when you started out, it seemed like, oh, this is really simple. Just follow step one, two, three, and it's all easy. And then when you deal with real cases, it becomes complicated. And part of what I'll do is bring up examples, not only from our experience, but also helping others work through their things. Uh, it relates to our conference, Church Discipline does, in a couple of very important ways. One is that in biblical counseling, uh, we would view biblical counseling as ordinarily the personal ministry of the Word in the local church, just as preaching is the public ministry of the Word in the local church. And for biblical counseling to work well, both the counselor and the counselee or counselees need to be in the local church. And if they're not both in proper relationship to a local church, the effectiveness of biblical counseling is going to be severely limited. Not only that, there's disobedience there because we all should be a, a committed part of a local church, but through decades of running a counseling center in our area, we, we took a lot of cases from people who were loosely connected to churches that did not have membership, that did not practice discipline. And we really found we could not get very far with those cases for various reasons. And so it's very important. I'll speak first to the counselor. Actually, I, I was speaking to someone earlier during this conference, and they were describing how they were in a church that was no longer supportive of biblical counseling. They're not there anymore, and they're kind of hurt, so they're going to wait a while to find another church. They said, well, I'm not sure you should be doing much biblical counseling until you're counseling under the authority of godly leadership in the next church. If you're too hurt to join a church, you're probably too hurt to be doing church ministry. You need oversight. Everybody doing ministry that's the ministry to which the Lord has called the church, which is shepherding sheep, should be doing so under the umbrella, oversight, with accountability to a local church. And that's essential. And even if someone is doing, you know, there's some counseling centers that are multiple churches working together, even parachurch ministries. I think the ideal is through a local church. But if that ministry is, in some other context, you should be accountable to your leaders of your local church. And part of that is sometimes in counseling, believe it or not, people don't like what you say. Sometimes they get angry enough to sue you, which is a whole other topic of how to avoid that. Part of it would be you have clear statements in your intake documents, you have clear statements in your church constitution and bylaws, how you handle these situations. You don't promise absolute confidentiality. You say we will do whatever the Bible says, even if that means telling other people who have a right to know. We're not Roman Catholic priests. We are not lawyers. Uh, we are biblical counselors, and we will sometimes have to tell other people. So you need to be in the context of a church. You need to be the authority of the church. And then just from the standpoint of the counselees, probably if there could be one failure factor, I would identify with the kinds of cases we got where we'd give people counsel is if they did not wind up joining a good church with faithful elders who shepherded the sheep, the best cases they kept coming back to us because they weren't being shepherded where they are. So the next time, first of all, they're not being fed, they're not being cared for. Then when trouble comes, they come back to the one place they know to get help, which was the people who counseled them that's not in their own church. Uh, but for people to really grow, the, the church is the place that God has designed for people to grow, to be discipled, to serve. And you will not have success in biblical counseling unless your counselees are in a local church and established well there. 
and a church which does a good job of, of caring for people. Some of that will include discipline. Uh, it's also important, as we'll see, that churches practice discipline. We've had cases where a local, you know, someone comes in and her husband is being unfaithful, and she approaches the church leadership, and the church doesn't have, quote, membership to begin with. They, I've had churches even say, well, you know, we're a young church. We're not expecting to start practicing discipline for several years. We're not ready for that yet. Uh, that's not a biblical excuse. You know, when, when Jesus rebukes the churches and the revelation letters for failing to expel heretics and immoral people, he doesn't say, well, you're young. We'll wait a decade or two before you start doing this. Paul, when he rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for immorality in the church, he doesn't say, well, you know, you guys are kind of an immature church, so we don't. Right from the beginning, you're supposed to be doing discipline. I actually had a case where, you know, church without membership, the guy's on the worship team, he's having an affair, but he's the only guy that can play his instrument, so they're really reluctant to do anything about it. This is not made up. <laughs> um, and so, you know, our counselees need to be in a solid church. And the little booklet, Help, I Need a Church, it's on the RTS table, and, and Steve has some for sale. I get about a nickel every time you buy one, so this is a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> Actually, the reason I wrote it is because over all these 20-something you know, years of counseling, people often who are coming, and, and the, a great benefit we had of taking all these counselees, multiple benefits. One is some of them became Christians. Some of them we got established in good churches, not necessarily our own. Uh, and also we were training people who watched the counseling. <laughs> but the frustration of people not being in churches where shepherds were doing their job, including church discipline, and discipling, it was so discouraging. The reason I wrote Help, I Need a Church was really to say, first, you need the church. You need to be in a church if you're a Christian. If you're not in a church, you have effectively excommunicated yourself. Church discipline is putting someone out of the church. If they're already out, they're, you, know, you have to be in before you can get out. And it's a bad thing not to be in. That's a picture of judgment. And so it's why you need it. And then what does the Bible say is important in looking for a church? And a lot of people, they want church where they have the donuts they like or the brand of coffee they enjoy or the music or the snacks their kids love or whatever. None of those things are important. I'm not saying that you, can, you have to disregard everything secondary, but we identify not nine but ten marks of uh, an excellent church that people should be looking for. But I would say even in counseling, if people aren't established in a church and they want to come to you for counsel, a condition is you need to, you don't have to come to our church. That matter, you don't want all your counselees necessarily to choose your church if they're outside because counseling center ministry gets a disproportionate number of difficult people. So you'd like to spread those around the neighboring churches to the extent you can. But a condition is you need to be seeking after a local church. Every Sunday you need to be going somewhere and find something that preach, some place that preaches the gospel. It can be Presbyterian or Baptist. It can be, you know, even on issues, if they're semi-continuationist, I'm a cessationist, I can, I can live with different things. But there needs to be a place where there's a, the gospel is preached, qualified elders are shepherding the sheep, and you need to be pursuing that, or I won't counsel you. It's going to be a waste of time. Um, now, as it relates to the topic of the conference, I think this is also significant because I think some people, when they're dealing is you know, letting go and wayward, typically we're thinking of family members, wayward children, uh, a wayward spouse. If this person professes to be a Christian, this is not just between you and them. If you have a child who's made a profession of faith and is a member of the church, even if they are a minor, you know, your 16-year-old daughter who's acting out, or a spouse who's the 35-year-old who's acting out, if they're members of the church, they're accountable to the church leadership. And that is a very important place you should be going. And even you know, the Matthew 18, we're going to buzz through sooner or later. You know, if he won't listen to you, 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 know, you go to two and then three, and then you take it to the church. The, the appropriate thing to do is to enlist the leadership of the church, the, the elders, the, the church as a whole, in holding this person accountable. And one of the questions that will sometimes come up on a practical level is, well, my husband is getting drunk and he's looking at porn and he's never home, but he claims to be a Christian and he forbids me from telling anybody else and I have to submit to him and so I can't tell anybody else. What do you think of that? Yeah, good, no way. When Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 18, and I'll read 
few of the verses, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. It doesn't say unless he's your husband, your parent, your pastor. It, it, there's not that exception there. If someone is in serious sin, love compels you to go to them. And if they will not listen to you, I don't care if it is your husband and he told you not to, for the sake of his own soul, you have the right to bring in others to try to rescue him. And so as we're dealing with wayward souls, if your wayward soul claims to be a believer, especially if they have made a profession of faith and they're members of a church, part of calling them to account, and actually this would be, as, as Dave was talking about, experiencing the consequences of their waywardness. Professing Christians do this. You've got the professing Christian husband or wife who is indulging in sin, you know, out of control anger, verbal abuse, uh, you know, drunkenness, drug abuse, pornography, and they escape the consequences because you never call them on it. And they can still go to church, smile at everybody, pass the plate, you know, whatever function they do. Uh, they're even pastors, by the way, in this situation where they're living a double life. And you know, I think uh, Paul Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling, portrays how you have you know, men who are effective professionally as pastors, but then their home life is a travesty. And, of course, the wife also can be afraid, well, if I report him, we're going to lose our job and everything blows up. But part of church discipline is not revenge. Church discipline is hoping to be restorative, but it's also holding a person to account. There's a price to be paid. And I've, I've seen many cases for real Christians. And actually, you know, one of the stories I would tell, so you may have heard the story before, but on myself is probably, well, I'm sure it was over 20 years ago, so somehow that doesn't make it as bad. But um, something happened where I became sinfully angry with Caroline, and I spent about a day not really engaging with her. I mean, I would grunt or but I was embittered in my heart, and I would not talk with her. And she's saying, talk to me. Help me understand what's wrong. And, you know, I'm a long time ago. I've repented. But um, finally she said, Jim, I'm going to call, and she named one of the elders in our church over here to talk to you if you don't work with me. And I decided I did not want that to happen. <laughs> and I think that's part of the effectiveness of church. For a real believer, even the threat of I'm going to stage two, or the benefit of having, you know, and if I chose to remain grumpy and two of the elders came over and said, Jim, what on earth are you doing here? For a real believer, at each of the stages of discipline, God uses it to restore, to discipline, to sometimes the, the, the swat of the, the, the pain of the, the embarrassment or the shame of having your sin exposed is what you need to take your sin seriously. Um, by the way, if you're trying to follow in your notes, your notes are pretty good. There are actually some typos in there you'll find. Uh, because I'm supposed to highlight practical issues in church discipline, I'm not following them precisely. It could be kind of a guide for you later. I was actually teaching a Bible study at our church in uh, North Carolina, teaching Sunday school, and I'm doing what I'm doing now, just speaking from my heart, the main ideas in the notes, without boom, 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 going down line by line. And there's this... Um, Russian gentleman, single guy, a little impatient, and he's looking at his notes, and where is he? Where is he? Funny. He threw them into the air. <laughs> so don't do that with you. It might wake somebody up. That wouldn't be all bad. But, um, so this, I'm trying to get the main points. In the limit. It would take me more than two hours to go through the notes exhaustively. Uh, a couple of other observations I would make in general about church discipline is I see a lot of things in the church where pendulums swing back and forth. I've actually written blogs about pendulums swinging in certain areas. But I think in church discipline, the general problem we see most of is a failure to discipline. The guy in the band in the church with no membership, he's having an affair in the church that says, we just don't do discipline. We don't want to you know, get sued. We don't want people to be mad at us. Uh, we're going to you know, just stay away from that. And, the Bible says they're going to have awful consequences for that. And that's most of what's going on. You've got people living in homosexual relationships and fornication and all kinds of bad things going on, or even not even having membership, no discipline at all, no, you know, no control of the Lord's Supper or anything. That's most of what's happening. But, of course, the way we are, especially those of us kind of who are reformed background, what do we do when we see that? 
And it can go to the other extreme where there are some churches that can be quick to discipline, harsh in their discipline, impatient in their discipline. And so we need to avoid both extremes. Um, and I'll give you just another general word of caution on this side. There may be times as church leaders when we don't agree with something someone is doing, but if you don't have gospel certainty from the scriptures that this is a disciplinable matter, there are going to be times when you may say, I disagree with what you're doing, but I'm not sure enough to be able to discipline you for it. And the most practical example I can think of in recent years that I've encountered is you have a woman who's living in a very difficult marriage and you're getting two different stories from the husband and the wife about abuse in the home. And she's saying, I don't feel safe. These are the things he says, does, threatens, and he's giving another story. And she comes to the conclusion she's going to get away. And you may in your mind think, I don't see conclusive evidence that she has a right to legal separation or divorce. But at the same time, you say, but I'm not sure enough of that, that I could discipline her for having made that decision because quite fr and I would ask an elder in this situation, I've, I've, I've had guys call me and say, what do I do, what do I do? This, I said, tell me this, that if you encourage, this is actually before the Southern Baptist thing came up, I asked this question, that, you, know, you don't think he's gonna hit her, hurt her, but she feels unsafe. Let's say you do send her home and she does get hurt or worse. You know, how's that going to go for you? Can you promise her, or what degree of certainty do you have that she's really safe? And if it's not almost an absolute certainty, and, and there, there's possibility someone could be irrationally fearful. Even then, it might be better temporarily to get her away. But you may be wrong about what this person is capable of, and so there are cases that are going to be difficult. And this is another thing that's humbling is that when you're 25, 30 years old and you start ministry and you read you know, J. Adams' Handbook of Church Discipline and you read Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, you think, well, this is pretty easy. We'll just do what the Bible says and it'll all be fine. But we've got some experienced pastors here. You get some really tough cases. And, and they're going to, I can't give all the cases now, but there are going to be cases where you, that's why plurality of elders is a great blessing, not having one person making these decisions, but in a, a group of men uh, struggling through this together to try to reach conclusions. I would even go so far to say if it involves a woman and it's a matter appropriate to get some counsel from your wives who may get some perspective on how the woman is processing it that you as men may not get. Uh, but sometimes it's really tough and you're pleading with God for wisdom and you're walking this tightrope where you're afraid of, you know, I said there's two sides of the pendulum. You're afraid of being too loose and being admonished like the Corinthians who allowed immorality to go on in their church or you're afraid of being too harsh and disciplining someone overly, you know, too readily, too roughly. And so we do need wisdom, and I do think it's appropriate to exercise caution. Um, another thing I think in, practically about church discipline that's important for us as biblical counselors is that uh, we as biblical counselors have the freedom that some licensed people don't. I have to be careful, I think there are licensed people here. But my understanding in different states have different rules. But I was talking to a man who actually teaches in a Christian school, Christian institution. I said, what would you do if a pastor in your denomination came to you as for counsel and told you that he was having sexual relations with multiple women in the church, not his wife? And so I'd tell him to stop. Okay, what if he won't stop? I'd tell him he should tell his other elders. I said, well, what if he won't tell his other elders? There's nothing else I can do. That the standards of conduct for my profession in a counseling relationship as a licensed therapist are such that I cannot go to that next step. And there have been actual cases like that where uh, you have a person in ministry, in one case I know of, person in ministry, raising support to be a full-time missionary somewhere, uh, went to Christian counseling that was licensed, confessed that he was having anonymous sexual hookups with men, met over the internet, and 
they were trying, I mean, he wanted to overcome that. They were trying to help him overcome that. He wasn't making much progress, but they could not go to his church leaders, to the institution where he was studying, to the agency for which he was raising money because of, at least in our state, the standards of conduct for people operating as professionals. I am so thankful to God that as a biblical counselor, that accountable to the church and not to standards made up by somebody outside, that we can say, thus says the Lord. And I'm, by the way, you can, you can do the right thing in church discipline and still get sued. So the objective is not to avoid being sued. You do what the Bible says. Now, there have been cases, some have gone for, some against. But we want to be faithful to what the scripture says. And I also know of licensed people who would say, well, I would do what I should do and suffer the consequences if they came. And I, I can appreciate that position more. I was discouraged, though, that the person with whom I talk is actually training dozens of people to be Christian therapists. And again, the only answer he could give is, I couldn't tell anybody. And there had actually been a case like that within several miles of him where people did know, didn't act. And of course, predators like that do a lot of damage before finally they're uncovered. So again, I'm thankful for the benefits of uh, biblical counseling in that way. I did have a by the way, a text for the abuse of it. In 3 John, you have in verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. And just as there are tragic cases of churches which fail to discipline in a biblical way. There are tragic cases where you have, sometimes it can be one person, sometimes it can be a group of elders who collectively are diatrophies. And really the, the, the one disciplinable offense is questioning them. And those who question them are publicly vilified and removed. And there have been horrible cases of this. And sadly, many of them in churches that we would say doctrinally are reformed and, and have some solid things about them. So in that, we need to be careful. Uh, another practical issue. I'm halfway through, and I'm not through the introduction yet. <laughs> but the introduction contained like the big issues. Um, and that would be, when is the best time to teach your church about what the Bible says about church discipline? When everything's calm that you've laid out to the church, here's what we believe the Bible says, here are our practices, that you've put it into your bylaws and constitution and your counseling ministry, you have intake forms that explain the nature of the confidentiality you do, confidentiality you do and do not offer. So you, you've laid out this way. So when a problem occurs, it doesn't look like you're making up a procedure to fit or go after these people who are annoying you. It's really tough to introduce biblical church discipline into a church that's about to split over how a situation is being handled. So I would really encourage you, if your church is not now having problems, get to this as fast as you can. Uh, it's really important that the people understand these things. And a lot of it relates to biblical peacemaking uh, as well. So a lot of this basic stuff I think you're familiar with, I'm gonna focus on some of the other things that people struggle with. Uh, so step one, you know, if, somebody's, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Which sin qualifies for this? Uh, the Bible also says love overlooks a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. I'm glad for that, aren't you? Uh, it's a glory to overlook a matter, Proverbs says. And so not every single sin, but the Bible identifies some specific sins and the other key passage on church discipline is 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul there has a list where he says in verse 9, I wrote you not to associate with the moral people. I didn't mean the moral people of the world. But he says covetous, swindlers, idolaters. And then he gives more in verse 11. Immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, even not even to eat with such a one. So there are sins that... Are, there are moral sins and doctrinal sins that are dangerous to the church in at least two ways. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
And that can be either moral sin or it can be doctrinal error. And taking examples over the years where you have in your church, you have a man and a woman in their 20s who are living together. They say someday we will be married, but they're living together in fornication. What's the problem with that continuing? Other young people will say that must be okay because those people are doing it. And like leaven, it can spread further into the church. And so in a case like that, it would be important that the church leadership say, we don't approve of this behavior and these people need to cease or be removed. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, drunkenness, I mean, a lot of other examples. And then error as well, false doctrine. Um, that someone comes in, and get a real example, somebody comes in as a full preterist. They believe that Jesus has already come. He's not coming again. It all happened in 70 AD. Well, Paul even writes about that, right? One of his letters, like, yeah, there's some crazy people saying Jesus has already come, as if I said so. This is a specific error the Bible warns against. And so as we addressed a couple people in our church who had come to that false doctrine through false teachers saying this is an unacceptable doctrine for a member of our church. Furthermore, people with weird doctrine don't want to talk about anything else but their weird doctrine. <laughs> and just say, this, is, this isn't just a matter where you're premillennial and I'm amillennial or you know, pre-trib, mid-trib. You know, there's some things Christians, if they have a sweet spirit, can get along with. This is someone who is, it's a, it's a, a denial of some of the fundamental truth of the faith. And so that is a dangerous leaven that they, they want to spread. They, that's what they're all about. Heretics want to talk about their heresy. They may say you, they agree with you 95%, but the 5% is all they're going to talk about. A third category, and there are multiple warnings in Titus and in Romans about people who are divisive. I'll give you another concrete example. Uh, we had a, a man many years ago visit our church. And when somebody comes, there's an expression that Jay Adams has that if you invite a Jonah into your boat, you are liable to run into some storms. And if someone has been big trouble in their previous church, and they come to your church, usually they're thinking, great, now we used to have 99 people, we have 100 people, and he may give, and well, not so fast. Wisdom would say, if somebody's come from another church, you find out from that church, What's the testimony on this guy? Well, as I learned about this guy, I had to go back to three or four churches, and basically every church he'd ever come into, he comes in flattering, oh, I've been to these other churches, they're awful, your church is amazing and wonderful, and life's gonna be great, and, and so what was the problem before? Well, this guy was divisive, and how is he divisive? Well, he had this way he believes, and that way he believes, and the other way he believes, and pushing, pushing, pushing. And so in, in our church, we had agreed on issues like the Sabbath and eschatology that to, to allow some freedom of conscience in those areas and not to say this is the only way it can be. Well, this guy comes, I mean, and so he came to the church. Like, if you want to come to our church, we, we know your past. You say it's all better now, but essentially we're going to be watching you. <laughs> and you, we want this to be a place of recovery for you where you can be a part of a church. It's time for you to listen and not teach and become a part of a healthy church. Well, it wasn't two weeks and he's got this stack of papers he's written and he's passing them out to people about his right view of the eschatology, his right view of the Sabbath. We called him in in front of all the elders and apparently you did not listen to us. <laughs> that uh, as a believer you're welcome in our church, but if you're going to push like all people have to have exactly your view of these things, and again you're not even a member yet and you're trying to become a teacher instructing like you're better at it than the elders already here, you can't go, oh thank you, that's I understand, I'm so sorry, we never saw him again. And he is not missed. <laughs> and I don't know what church he went on to cause trouble. But I mean, those are the general categories of divisiveness, moral failure, and doctrine. But the problem is it, it, it corrupts the church. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's of such a nature that even among the Gentiles it's scandalous. You know, it's, it's not just the harm it does to the church, the harm it does to Christ and his reputation in the community. Another example I have, I had a friend from Mississippi call me one day and says, well, I got a problem. Says my, one of my deacons is on the front page of the local paper and it's not for a good thing. <laughs> I think he embezzled or something. Hopefully he wasn't the treasurer. But, you know, local church deacon caught, you know, stealing money from county or something that we, we care about the reputation of the church in terms of if you have someone, it's not, we always think of sexual immorality and public drunkenness or something, but someone who is a swindler is on the list. It's, 
you know, someone who's dishonest in business and cheating and hurting others, and that brings shame to the name of Christ. And so we're concerned about the reputation of Christ. It's also if someone is engaged in sin that could hurt others. In Matthew 7, the so-called golden rule, uh, it's not, you know, if, if what they're doing, it could be someone who's been engaged in uh, hurting children or worse, and uh, you're concerned, this is where it needs to be reported and dealt with through the civil authorities as well, but you're concerned not just for what harm may come to your church, but other people who may be harmed by their sin. Uh, if, if, like the swindler, again, another example, I can think of two examples actually. Uh, one would be a person who comes into your church and he's selling completely bogus things and trying to get people to invest a lot of money in his scheme, and it's gonna ruin them financially. And he's just there to sell the stuff, and you have to protect your people from that. Uh, I had another example, I was supervising a case where you had a young adults group in a church and you had this guy in his late 20s was in that group and he was going from girl to girl and dating her for a while, claiming to be interested in marriage, engaging in immorality at some point, claiming to repent, then going on to the next girl and this guy was a menace. And so they needed to be protected from him and I guess also he needed to be protected from himself. himself. So. Uh, you go, um, I guess one more category would be you go if it threatens your relationship with that person. Sometimes it can be more personal, like my being grumpy, extraordinarily grumpy and quiet with my wife, it was affecting our relationship. It was appropriate that she go to me even though others were not yet being affected. Although who can imagine preaching when you're in that state of mind? But um, so you go for that sake. And then I love Galatians 6.1, which I'm sure many of you can quote. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. So when he says go, go to him about you see your brother in sin. Uh, I'm thankful that I'll jump to Galatians 6 and say, well, you don't go in anger to vent on the person. You go to fix them. The word restore in Galatians 6 is like it's used of nets that are torn that need to be fixed. So they can be functional again. You're going to help them. Uh, I like it. You know, the, the beauty of the Word of God, it's just, just that one verse is so comprehensive where he says that if he's caught in a trespass, and, and so if you, just to think the problem here is not on this horizontal level, what he did to me, and it's a trespass against God. I'm restoring him to God. He sinned against God. It's not about me. And, and for his sake and for the, the Lord's sake, to, to love him, I, I want to see him restored to God. And then it says, you who are spiritual. You know what that means? What's the context of Galatians 6? Right after the fruit of the Spirit. If you're not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, if the fruit of the Spirit is not in your heart, you're not ready to go. Uh, which is why you pray before you go. You think about what you're going to say before you go. And if, if you're in vent mode, you need to repent of your fleshliness and walk in the Spirit, remember God's grace to you, and, and try to make things better. Also, how you go. Caroline has a talk she gives on gossip. You go to that person. You don't go tell everybody else what they do. That's our flesh, right? It's much easier to tell other people what has been done wrong to us than it is to actually go to that person. Uh, that's part of what needs to become the culture of a church is that we just learned that if, if we hear somebody complaining about somebody else, and then, then what did he say when you asked him about that? You want me to go help you with the next stage? Oh, no, I haven't talked to him. Well, tell me how it goes. Uh, now you're accountable to me for that because you've brought me into it. Um, but you, you do it, you do it in love, you do it gently for the purpose of restoration. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. This happens a lot. This happens in my house, and there are only two people living there most of the time. And uh, it happens from time to time, probably more to me than to her. And in that, we can rejoice. Um, I've already addressed the question that being under someone's authority doesn't change that. A big change that occurred in our marriage when Caroline got biblical counseling training is she understood from the Bible that part of her duty as my helper would be to restore me when I'm sinning, instead of thinking it was submissive just to keep her mouth shut. Uh, part of it, as we finally work those things through, is that she is being unsubmissive to me if she doesn't confront me when she sees me sinning. I want her to come to me. 
I want to make that easy for her. But even if your husband doesn't make it easy, that doesn't mean you're not responsible to go. And even if it's your, your parent, that's, that's what you're called to do. Um, ordinarily, it's between you and that person. I mean, there are a couple of exceptional situations. Uh, one can be that you find out what's happening. So a guy comes and says, I, you know, whatever, I was, I had a one night stand and I want to repent and confess that to God and say, that's great, but somebody else has a right to know about this. And so part of dealing with it, if you're really repentant, is you're going to have to finish telling your wife or your husband has a right to know about this and you know, deal with further implications. So part of repentance, part of listening to you, actually, I knew one guy that like four different people came to him as a church leader to confront him about his sin. And he'd say, okay, I've listened to you. I guess we're done. No. The fact that you're, you didn't interrupt and you let us say what we had to say, but then you don't want to change does not mean you've listened. Listened means you react with repentance. And I'll, I'll get to more of what that means as we keep going. Um, and if they won't do what's necessary, you may need to move to stage, well, you will need to move to stage two. Other exceptions would be sometimes you don't have to go alone. One would be, Paul doesn't, in 1 Corinthians 5, when you've got the scandalous immorality in Corinth, everybody knows about it anyway. And so he doesn't feel the need to go here, go here, go there. There are exceptional situations. Another example is Peter's public sin and recorded in Galatians 2 of denying the gospel by refusing to eat with the Gentiles. And Paul deals with the public sin publicly. So ordinarily, you would go alone, but there can be times. The other example would be, well, actually, real example is a, a woman in our church found clear evidence of her husband's sexual immorality. He'd also been angry and somewhat abusive. So in this case, to confront him, uh, I found two guys bigger than I am to come with me and her to go tell him to leave the house because of this proof that had been found. And for her to send her alone to confront an angry, adulterous man would have been very unsafe for her. And so I had my bouncers with me and I had enough muscle that he left peaceably. Uh, not my muscles, but my muscle people that came with me. Um, another verse I'll just mention here is that when you're on the receiving end, Proverbs 9, verse 8 says, If you rebuke a scoffer, he will hate you. If you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. And so one of the challenges of this is sometimes we're the ones who need to be admonished at this stage by even one of our children or a spouse or a friend. And may God help us to be the wise who welcome those who rebuke us, even if they don't do it perfectly, and they never will, but not to put them on trial for imperfectly following Matthew 18 when they tried to correct us, realizing it's really tough to correct somebody else when you're trying to do it in the right way and to be humble people who are thankful that people are willing to correct us. Uh, step two is if you will not listen to you, take two or three more with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Um, real example, a woman in the church confided that she was having an affair with a married man, a divorced woman having an affair with a married man. Her friend, with whom she confided, confronted her. She would not listen. So her friend brought two of the leaders to her, you know, the, the woman having the affair, and together we confronted the woman having an affair. That friend, it was very hard for that friend to do that, but she did what was necessary. I think it's important, though, there's a distinction which says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, it's going back to the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, I believe, that the, the purpose of the two or three witnesses is to, you've got a situation where sin is clear cut and they're bearing witness against this person for their sin, uh, compelling them, we hope, to repent. There's another situation the Bible addresses that's different than what Jesus is talking about here. And that can be a situation where you've got two people who disagree and she says she's wrong and she says, no, she's wrong. That's Philippians 4, Yodi and Syntyche who need mediation. Or it's 1 Corinthians 6, not 5, where you've got a lawsuit and you've got, two, you know, you've got a contractor and his Christian friend and now the bathroom's been remodeled and they can't agree on whether it was done right and the price is right. They're both accusing each other of sin. So those are cases not where you bring the two or three and witness against them. That's where you bring in some people to mediate or even to do binding arbitration. But here it's a matter of just bearing witness. It's clear you're, you know, you're a drunkard, you're an adulterer, you're a swindler. And we're bringing this now with more authority. And 
I've seen cases in the church where somebody wouldn't listen to me and I brought one or two other elders with me and with his wife or her husband and suddenly now he pays attention. Now he's taking it seriously. God is wise. <laughs> what he set up here, we don't, you, know, you, you follow what it says and then he often sees fit uh, to work in wonderful ways. So then again, if he repents, you rejoice. If not, you keep going. One of the issues that church leaders need wisdom on is how fast do you do this? It's like, you know, 9 a.m. step one, 9.30 step two, you know, 10 o'clock step three, 10.30 call a church meeting and by noon he's excommunicated? Probably not. So in some cases you might have a wife pleading with her husband for some period of time before she finally says, you know, he's just not listening. I'm going to go get help. There's not a precise measure. And even at step two, um, actually in the case where this woman was having the affair, she was about to go on vacation with her married boyfriend. And we basically said, she was supposed to leave the next day. We said, if you're not in church on Sunday, we will, on, it was, we move really fast to the next step saying, we are going to put you under public discipline from the church because you went away on this vacation. Other cases, it's moved more slowly as you're pleading with somebody to turn to the Lord and repent before the consequences of what they've done comes upon them. And then it says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, this is something, again, where you're looking in light of the rest of Scripture. So, okay, if he didn't listen to me, tell it to the church. It doesn't spell out in Matthew 18 exactly how that happens. And so I'm going to speak, I think, biblically informed wisdom and real case. So I saw a case in a church one time where you had a man and his wife who were upset with all six elders. They didn't agree with something they did. And they went to the elders and said, we don't like whatever you're doing here. And the elders said, well, thank you for your concern. We're convinced we're doing what we need to do. It's not unbiblical. It's a matter we're free to do. And say, okay, well, we want to take it to the church. They wanted to stand up in a church meeting and put all the elders under discipline using Matthew 18, stage 3. Well, in the church, the elders of the church have responsibility to lead, Hebrews 13, 17. Um, and, and so I think ordinarily in the life of a church, the leaders of the church get to be directing through this process, not just any two people out of 200 get to pop up and excommunicate whoever they want to excommunicate. The, the elders are responsible for the order of the church. They say, well, what happens if the elders have gone bad, haywire? Find another church. <laughs> Sometimes it would get to that with independent churches that you, you know, some of you might be in a Presbyterian system and you say, well, then you go to the Presbytery. I don't see that in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 would be several verses longer, in my opinion, if I teach at a Presbyterian seminary, I need to be careful. But if if their system would be, if you won't listen to the church, then you bring it to the presbytery. If you won't bring it to the presbytery, to the synod, the synod of the general assembly, and it'd be 50 verses long. But um, I think some, there would be cases where churches horribly misapply discipline. They swing to the pendulum wrong, or they refuse. Sometimes it's where I've had you know the woman of the guy in the band and the church won't do anything. I said, what do you conclude from this? <laughs> Maybe I'm in the wrong church. If they won't do what the Bible clearly says, and effectively she excommunicates them. I mean, she doesn't stand up and say, I thereby excommunicate you. She said, this is not a true church where I should be worshiping. I need to go find a place where the elders will feed and shepherd the sheep, even if the music isn't quite as cool as the place I'm leaving. But it's no, the music's no fun to listen to because her husband's in the band. Um, so in the telling it to the church, uh, different churches do a different way. In my opinion, probably the ideal is you're telling the members of the church, not the 50 other people from the community that happen to show up or the other people who haven't joined. It's a matter for the church, the membership of the church. It's interesting, there's another step here I didn't always recognize, because if he doesn't listen to the church, then you put him out. It seems to me there's a phase here where when you tell the church what's happening, the church then pleads with that person to repent before he's actually excommunicated. We've had cases in our church where somebody was involved in a certain sin and we told the church what's going on and then people in the church are writing and calling and begging and pleading, please repent. Don't put yourself under judgment. And I, I thought it was actually, it was beautiful to see how much the people loved that person 
and tried to pull them back in. Um, I'll also say when you tell the church, you have to tell the church what you're telling them. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen is that they'll kind of say, well, this person over here has done something wrong and we can't really tell you exactly what it is or how we know, but we want you to join us in admonishing him. If you're going to tell the church, you need to tell them so that they can join you, that they know what happened, they know what your proof is. Uh, that They're joining you in pronouncing judgment from God on this person. They need to know the evidence by which that judgment is pronounced. Does that make sense? And I think that can be, church discipline can be abused when the leaders say, this is a bad man, just trust us. If you're practicing church discipline properly, you should have evidence, proof, a chain of Here's what we did. You know, we learned about committing adultery. He admitted it. We confronted him. He still won't repent. This is what's happening. And I've actually seen, but especially when church leaders have been disciplined, that sometimes, church, well, you know, we don't want to embarrass him or shame him. And then that person turns around and counter-accuses the church of, oh, this, these people have been so mean to me. I just had a little discretion. And you need to lay out the evidence so the congregation can join you in acting on God's behalf. I mean, when you get to the last part where whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven, two or three of you gather, as you probably know that's not just the prayer meeting. That's If you're acting on God's behalf in judgment, that's a serious matter. But the church needs to understand what's going on, which is probably why you want the membership of the church there and not the whole community and not to broadcast it on the internet while it's happening. Um, and this is where back to constitution, bylaws, people join, people need to understand, fair warning, this is how we do things. You can still try to sue us, you can sue anybody for anything, but this is how we do things and coming in you need to know. And one thing we put in our bylaws I think is important is you can't suddenly resign your membership and avoid discipline. If the process has begun, then we are going to continue it to the end, and you can't just claim, well, I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing. And there was a famous case decades ago where somebody was committing adultery and they resigned and then they sued and they won. I can't promise that won't happen to you, but you need to do what the Bible says anyway. And a lot of people don't practice church discipline. They're afraid of losing people. They're afraid of being sued. I will say there are prudent things you could do to safeguard yourself, and they're actually kind of model examples um, of that you can find a language that may help you. And then, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, I've already mentioned that you, you remove the person, and let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 5, the other key passage, where he says in verse 4, well, I'll just start in verse 1. It is actually reported there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then you jump down, and you know he'd said not even to eat with such a one in verse 11, verse 12. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, I do believe there can be cases of less than fully kicking somebody out that can be disciplinary. You can say to somebody, you can no longer teach, you can no longer work on the nursery, you, can, you, you might choose to say you can't take communion, you, you're restricted in certain ways, or even you can't leave the site. You know, you, did something really awful to a child 10 years ago and you need to stay virtually handcuffed to a deacon whenever you're in the building and stay away from children. So there can be kind of disciplinary things. Public admonition is, is used in, in Thessalonians in some cases where someone apparently isn't totally put out. But the ultimate stage of church discipline isn't saying, well, you can still come to church, hang out, drink coffee, chat with people, have the fellowship meal, and just you can't have communion once a month when we pass it around. Out is out. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of the, the wicked will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. This, 
It's a picture of being cast into the lake of fire. Now, in this case, because they're not dead yet, you're hoping that by them being handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh would be for a real believer, like, oh, what have I done? And that God would, like David, after his adultery and murder, would come to repentance and, and would return. But for a real believer to be cast out of the church is just awful, painful, miserable, separated from the people of God. If they're basically enjoying everything, every benefit of being a Christian, except for, you know, a, a little cracker and grape juice, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Out is out, if you're still in. Uh, again, the guy who has been drunk and immoral, and he's not allowed to communion, but he's hanging out, talking to everybody between services, and drinking his coffee, and eating his donut. He could be an influence. He can be leavened. And so, in, so putting the person out is he's regarded, let him be to his Gentile attacks, or you're, you're treating him as an unbeliever. Although, He's, it's the worst of all worlds because he claims to be a Christian. Paul even says, look, if the person is not a believer, it doesn't mean you have to disfellowship that person. But if a person claims to be a believer and is living like a pagan, that's the worst of all cases. He cannot be among you. A uh, couple of other things practically. One would be, we've had cases. I mean, it's actually not been uncommon. You have somebody grew up in the church sometime in their teens. They made a profession of faith. They go to college, uh, they get in a relationship, they're living with their boyfriend, girlfriend, and you start the process of discipline saying, I'm just not a Christian. Well, the way our church would have handled that, maybe others would have, okay, we will declare to the church that you not only resign your membership, but you're not claiming to be a Christian anymore. So now you have not someone you're not allowed to fellowship eat with. You're just saying this person is not a believer. They're not living this lifestyle claiming to be Christians. They have turned away, denied the faith that they professed. And so that person, in my opinion, is more of a candidate to visit the church if they so choose than the person claiming to be a believer and living that way. And so that sometimes happens. They say, I now admit I'm not a Christian. I probably never was a Christian. Um, that will sometimes happen. Uh, another practical thing that comes up is in chapter 6, he says that believers should not go to court against each other. Well, if this person is put out of the church, and it may be for being a swindler, or it may wind up being in court because of marriage issues, now you, if you, you may choose to go to court because now you're no longer suing a believer. You're now going to court against the unbelieving investor, well, the, the person who's been cast out of the church as an unbeliever, even though he claims to be a believer, who swindled everybody, and it's no longer a matter for mediation or arbitration within the church because he's out of the church, and then if you had to go to court, you could, not that you have to, uh, that's up to you. And then when it says not even to eat with such a one, um, if someone claims to be a Christian, living that lifestyle, been put out of the church, you can't just hang out. You can't, let's go have coffee and talk about sports. Let's go play golf together. Let's go whatever. It means you've disfellowshipped that person, um, not around them. One question comes up, well, again, real example, where you have the 12-year-old son of the man who was excommunicated for adultery. And the court says, you've got to hang out with your dad. Or even the 30-year-old daughter of the guy who was unfaithful, claims to be a Christian, left his wife, remarried someone, uh, daughter. Does that mean you can never talk to that person again? My take personally is you can't have fellowship with that person in a Christian way. You can, in a sense, have a family relationship. But in one case, I even said to the 30-year-old daughter, if your father is trying to be a spiritual leader and say, let me show you this wisdom from the Bible. Let me pray with you. Say, you can't, you're not in a position to do that because you're in the status that the Bible says. I care about you as my father. It's not that I can never be around you but I can't treat you as if you're a Christian. So that's my take on that practically. Um, the usual responses of people under discipline is they just bug out usually before you've gotten through all the process. I've had one case where somebody kept coming till the very end and it was just kind of weird where finally we said, you can't come anymore, okay. But ordinarily, and then I guess another common response is that they will put you on trial for being harsh, mean, not following Matthew 18 correctly, and they will do a counteroffensive, which is why you want to have a policy 
in your constitution and bylaws. You want to follow that policy carefully, and you want to make it clear to the church what you're doing and why biblically. Um, I have five minutes. I meant to give more, but rather than going on with the rest of my material, does somebody have a question you think would be of general interest? So perhaps this is obvious, but um, we've, we've seen the case where you're not supposed to take another Christian to court. Um, what if it's clearly a criminal matter okay. between two Christian families? Yeah, well, then it's no longer between two Christian families. So con well, not, I'll not use, I don't know what your example would be, but if the teenage son of one family molested the five-year-old girl, now that is a crime and it falls not under the jurisdiction of the church only, but the state must be informed and that's for the sake of other potential victims and even for the sake of the perpetrator that he needs to experience the consequence of what he did wrong. So let's take it one step further, I agree. Um, what role would you see the church playing in that situation? It's a both end. The church will do within the church what we need to do in terms of discipline, discipleship, leading to repentance. And the state would do what they need to do in their realm, which could be incarceration, sex offender list, whatever. So if a professing Christian commits a crime like that, and then part of the test of repentance would be whether they embrace that or not. One thing I brought with me, you say, well, Sorry. Um, how do you know somebody's repentant? And through the process, and we've created this repentance card <laughs> that I'll send back. You can take one each. And if you want to make more, I can send you a template. We haven't found a way to make money. If you, I could make a generous donation both to RTS and IBCD. Uh, but um, I've been using this a lot in counseling. And I think it works very well in church discipline. Is this person repentant? 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a worldly sorrow that leads to death. But then there's a true godly repentance, which is characterized by a zeal to make things right. Could I have one of the cards, please? <laughs> well, give him one. Give him two. Um, but I have found when I've been counseling people, and I think it would work very well in church discipline situations, We've had three cases just in the last year where there's been infidelity or abuse. And you hand this to the victim and you say, do you think he or she is repentant? And, you know, are they self-focused or are they God-focused? You know, against you and you only have I sinned. I'm sinning against God. It's terrible. Or, boy, this is so hard for me. I'm Cain and I'm getting kicked out and it's so mean. And, you know, do you hate the consequences of your sin? No, everybody's going to be mad at me. Or you hate your sin itself. You know, except responsibility, accountability? Um, do you not trust yourself or do you demand to be trusted? Um, so this, this actually began with an idea from Wayne Mack from many years ago. I've kind of tweaked it, added to it, and made it into a card. But uh, I think some of this, you know, you're trying to discern, is this person, I'll hand it to the person and say, where do you think you are? And I've had people admit, I see, I'm not there. You know, I'm, there's the sorrow of Cain, there's the sorrow of Esau, I believe, where, boy, it's really tough, these consequences of my sin, versus a true brokenness before God. Yes? Um, we have a family where um, the husband committed adultery and was church disciplined. The adult children um, understand that don't have fellowship um, because the father is not repentant. Um, and won't acknowledge any wrongdoing, um, not a, have no relationship, and he doesn't get to see grandchildren. Do they need to be counseled differently, or are they? Okay? I would say it's a matter of freedom. That's actually my next talk. My next talk okay. is dealing with wayward parents. Okay. But I would say that my understanding is they would be free to say, "We really believe what you did wrong <coughs> is wrong. We can't acknowledge you as a Christian, but." we still want to have some relationship with you. I think you're free to do that with a family member. You know, the woman in, well, if, you know, if you think of someone in 1 Corinthians 5 and your husband has been disciplined by the church, it wasn't for adultery, it was for being a swindler. I don't think it means you can't eat with your husband if you have no other grounds. So my inclination is that you can have a family relationship but not fellowship meal, fellowship as a Christian. So if the children aren't willing, because he continues in the sin? It's up to them. So His problem doing, is he's lost. So, but they're not doing anything wrong by staying away? I think it's their freedom. If I were counseling them, I probably would see if I could encourage. I would need to know so much more than I know now before I gave a good answer. One would be 
Does he claim to be a Christian or does he admit he's not a Christian? And is there a way they can show kindness and grace to him like, you know, we've been talking about in the last talk that Dave gave to find ways to show love to prodigals, to wayward people without enabling them? Yes? Yeah, so if you have um, like a 17, 18, 16, 17, 18 year old in your church, right? And there's sin in their life, drug abuse, or you know, whatever it may be, um, and, and they're, let's say they're, uh, you know, a believer. In, mm -hmm. They profess to be a believer. They might not be a believer. Exactly. Yeah. Does that become a parenting issue, or, or is that? I think it's another example of two spheres. It's like you could have both the government and the church involved. I think you could have both the parents and the church involved. That person is in, we're, all of us are in multiple submissive relationships and the elders of the church and the government, all of us. And so I would say the elders have a role to play whatever the, and shepherd the parents as well as shepherd the child. And hopefully you'd be cooperating together and exercising authority. But I think both have responsibility. Yes. Yeah, for someone going through the restoration process, at what point is the process deemed to be over? <laughs> That was part I left out, isn't it? Second Corinthians 2 is glorious because he says, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient now. Love him, restore him. And so a point comes. I think that repentance card is a good thing to start with, is do you see from Second Corinthians 7, from the character, is this person making a credible profession of repentance for their sin, not just regret over consequence, in which case, Love hopes all things, and they are restored. And I'm thankful that you've got 2 Corinthians 2, where the person who apparently had been excommunicated fully is now allowed back, having repented. So that's often the glorious outcome of doing what the Bible says. I'm just wondering about, um, say, family members, but belonging to different churches. And, the, you know, you're, wanting, you're confronting them, you've brought your... Mm -hmm. Witnesses and this Christian <clears throat> family, this person's unrepentant. Do we? Is it important to in, like involve that person's church? And how do we? Should right. we submit ourselves? That's other to stuff that I skipped, isn't it? So. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. It, it, it's stuff I should have gone faster at the beginning and gotten to. So, <clears throat> churches should cooperate together in matters of discipline so far as they're able. And so I think it's a really, if somebody else is a member of the church, I think it's good to work with the leaders of your church to go to the leaders of their church and say, this person has swindled me or this person has been immoral. And you try to get them to do what the Bible says. Now, it may be they don't do what the Bible says and they just don't do that. They're liberal or lax or whatever, in which case you've done what you can and now you kind of treat them and their church as something you can't put in the category of really being faithful or believing. So I think it's good to try. Uh, in terms of churches cooperating, ordinary, if somebody comes from another church and they were under, you, you check out, or were they under discipline? Were things okay? But even if they were under discipline, it may be that church has been extraordinarily harsh and the discipline was invalid. And there's another example where you have a church that takes a permanence view that you can never remarry no matter what. So here's a woman who was beaten, abused, her husband was repeatedly unfaithful and is now remarried. She wants to remarry. She's in a church that doesn't believe in that. She gets disciplined for remarriage because that's their belief. Well, she could come to our church and we'd say, you had grounds and you're free to remarry. There have also been cases where someone has been excommunicated just because they challenged the pastor on flagrant misuse of funds, and so he's publicly excommunicated. He comes to another church and, oh no, this guy's under discipline. Will you investigate the matter? Say, that was invalid, and so each local church has its right to address you know, an individual, but it's certainly, you try to cooperate, it doesn't always work. And that's the same thing in counseling. We go to the church, try to get them to do what the Bible says. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. With the family member? Yeah. You're going to run into a wall sooner or later, probably sooner, but you're free to keep trying, but you don't have the authority at the end to do anything about it. <laughs> Would you personally? To like just fellowship with that person. That's another choice. Or you can just, yeah, you can say, I can't fellowship with you as a believer, yeah. but I can't do anything else about it. 
and I'll still have a limited relationship with you. You may choose to limit the relationship without ending the relationship, but it's probably good that you say what you think. I appreciate your patience. I've gone over. Let me pray, and I can hang around for a few minutes before I go talk about the next problem. <laughs> Father in heaven, again, we give you thanks for the perfect wisdom of your word. We thank you for the fact that you have kept us in your church when we are sinners who would have wandered apart from your grace. And we pray, Lord, for the wandering ones that you would help churches to be faithful and that you would bring them back and give the church leaders here especially wisdom in dealing with the difficult cases that come along and the humility sometimes to be willing to question themselves and uh, to work together and even to cooperate with other churches. Uh, I know there are people here who are troubled and hurting and Lord, give them comfort and wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.